So when I was a 13-year-old girl, my dad took our family snow skiing. He was doing really well in business at that moment. Uh, we had some extra finances. And so our family of five went snow skiing. I had a younger sister who was six at that point, Catherine, and an older brother, 16 years old, a big strapping A-team rugby player of a lad. And we went snow skiing. If you've never been, uh, and here in South Africa, you probably don't have any context for snow whatsoever, you can picture sliding down a sand dune. It's like similar to that, with long, flat skis on your feet. And there's one rule, snow plow to stop. That's the most important rule of snow skiing. So you take these long skis and you tilt your toes towards each other if you want to stop. So you make an arrowhead and then you conk your knees in so that your skis are slanted and are pushing against the snow. So snow plow to stop is the number one rule of snow skiing. So once we'd all learned how to snow ski, we were very proficient after a week. Uh, we were going as a family from one slope to another slope, but that required going down a quite an icy road. And at one point in the road, my dad, who was uh, heading up the, uh, our little train of five, realized that there was a sharp bend with a cliff on the other side of it and no barrier. So he decided to stop uh, at some point on the bend. He asked my brother to stop 10 meters short of him. And then I stopped a little short of my brother uh, so that when my little sister came around, uh, she would get around the bend safely. So she came towards us, not knowing what was on the other side. Going on the uh, going on the, this icy road, and we all and she was just going so fast, and we all started shouting, "Slow down, Captain! Slow down! Stop!" And she knew the rule: snow plow to stop. The trouble is that rule only works when there's snow. It doesn't work when you're on an icy road. Then you just basically turn your skis into into ice skates, and off you go. And so she was ice skating now towards the edge of the cliff at full speed, somewhere in between my brother and I, where neither of us could reach her. Again, my brother was a very athletic young boy at that time, 16-year-old, and he dived out of his skis. Your feet are clipped into your skis. He dived, left his skis behind, stretched his hand like that, and with his fist, hit her in the face. <laughs> And she was knocked out of her skis onto the hard, icy road. And she was furious with her brother for hitting her in the face because she knew the rules. Number one, snowplow to stop. She was doing that. Number two, boys don't hit girls. And yet neither of those rules, neither of those proverbs, if you like, worked for her in that situation. And the whole family were celebrating. The brother. She was terribly confused. So we're in a series on wisdom. And in these wisdom books, we started off with Proverbs. Proverbs being, I think in school they call them idioms or sayings. It's, uh, it's simple wisdom that you can stand by things like a gentle answer turns away wrath or iron sharpens iron. Pride comes before the fall. But at some point in our lives, in every man's life and every woman and every child's life, there comes a point when that proverb doesn't work for us. The proverb falls short. And so the second book we looked at was Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes is this middle-aged critic, uh, is, is the spokesperson of this book, who's realized that the proverbs are not working, and he just throws them all out. Everything is meaningless. And in the midst of that meaningless, critical, disillusioned life, he holds on to God alone, which is the saving grace of the book of Ecclesiastes. And now we're looking at wisdom from Job. 
Job is the older man. He's had some experience. He's realized that the Proverbs don't always apply as simply as you would like them to apply. And yet he's able to find God and find a deeper wisdom, a greater wisdom that is able to include the simple wisdom of the Proverbs, but at a deeper or a higher both, a higher, just at a greater level to understand the essence of those Proverbs and therefore be able to apply them in situations where they might look a little different. Because life doesn't always work out perfectly right. Well, sometimes good things happens to bad people and bad things happens to good people. And it just seems like when we're looking at the situations we're in, the proverbial poop hits the fan and life is not working out. And so as a preaching team, we decided to call this Job when the Proverbs hit the fan. Because Richard has been speaking to us and teaching us that the wisdom of God is woven into the fabric of society. And that if we go along with that wisdom, if we go with the grain, that things will go well with us. And yet sometimes we look at our lives and we look at the situations and that's just not true. We're going with the wisdom of the book. And we're going along with the grain and we're getting splinters. And so it's either not true or it's not true from our perspective and from the way we're looking at it and the way that we're able to understand it. At the start of this year, uh, full disclosure, I was feeling a little bit disillusioned with God. I was feeling a little bit like I had been doing everything according to the book and he was not holding up to his end of the deal. That Proverbs says that when the wicked dig a pit for you, they'll fall into it, but except they weren't. I was falling into it, and it just wasn't fair. And I, I wonder if some of you have asked the question in the last few weeks or months, like, why, God? It just seems like you don't have my back. It seems like you're not doing what you said you would do. It seems like I'm trying, I'm trying to do it all right. I'm trying to do things the way that you told me to do it, and I'm not getting the outcome that I expected or that I feel like you promised. And what is going on? We hadn't started this wisdom series yet, and yet um, I felt like God took me to Job 13, where Job is in a similar situation. And Job 13 says this, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. And this will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before him. And I got three things out of that scripture at the time. First of all, that I should trust him. Number one, though he slay me, I will hope in him. I will trust him. Even when life does seem like a meaningless mist and it seems like none of the Proverbs are working and nothing is making sense, though he slay me, I will hope in him. I will be honest though. Number two is we're allowed to be honest. In fact, we're encouraged to be honest. I will argue my ways to his face. I'm going to wrestle with him about this. I'm not going to run away. I'm going to wrestle with him about my confusion, about my disappointment, about my disillusion. And then thirdly, God just assured me that he does have my back, that the godless will not stand before him. The godless are not in there with God getting secret tips. He, it, it does make sense to be righteous. It will work out. We might not understand it, right now. We might not see it right now, but the godless do not stand before him. It is our prayers 
that he's listening to, us who are wrestling with him, us who are not running away from him, us who are taking our confusion to him. It is our prayers that he answers. It is us who are able to come before him. If you think of my little sister, Catherine, she knew the rule, boys shouldn't hit girls. And yet in this situation, it looked like the exact opposite was being celebrated. And the funny thing is it wasn't an exception to the rule. It wasn't that boys should hit girls in these situations. On the contrary, Kevin applied the rule perfectly in the situation because the deeper truth to boys shouldn't hit girls is that the strong shouldn't hurt the weak. And more than that, the strong are given their strength for service of the weak. That some are strong, and the reason that they are strong in certain areas is to help the weak. So on the contrary, with a greater perspective, Kevin perfectly applied the proverb, boys shouldn't hit girls. But that did not look true from the perspective of a six-year-old with a bleeding nose lying on, the, lying on an icy road. From her perspective, it had been completely broken. But from the rest of the family's perspective, it had been held perfectly. It's hard for logic to trump emotion. If you ask Catherine today, as an almost 40-year-old, if she thinks that her brother kindly hit her in the face, or heroically hit her in the face, it's hard for her to admit that that's true, because her emotion was not that. And it's hard for logic to trump emotion, but that's what Job is calling us to. The book of Job is calling us to a greater thoughtfulness, where our willingness to consider a higher truth allows us to to discount the emotion of the moment. And so that brings us to the book of Job. So I'm going to try and and whiz through the storyline quite quickly. There's a council in heaven. Uh, The point is not an accurate display of heaven, but God is in this little council room. He's saying to everyone, have you considered Job? Job is is really amazing. He's a really righteous guy, and he is completely innocent. I'm really impressed with him. And there's somebody else in the room who the Bible refers to as a, a Satan. And a lot of people, when they read that, think, why is the devil allowed in the throne room of heaven? I want to stand before the throne room of heaven. But that is not what the Bible's referring to. It's a lowercase s. Uh, the Satan is simply an opposition, someone who's bringing a different viewpoint. There's another time in the Bible that the Satan is mentioned, and it's an angel of the Lord standing before uh, a man, Balaam. His donkey sees the angel. The angel is opposing uh, this man, and that angel is also called a Satan. It's just it's someone who's coming in opposition to what the others are thinking in the room. And so this character who is not important other than he presents an interesting question. He comes uh, with the possibility, says, okay, God, Job is righteous, but every deed of every righteous deed is being rewarded. And so his righteousness is not being truly tested because how do you know that it's true righteousness if it's not righteousness only for righteousness's sake? He is getting rewarded. And so how do you know that the, sim- the system is not so simple that Job is actually just working the system? And he might actually have wicked motives and be a wicked man who's figured out exactly how to get blessing from God. So he, he brings an interesting perspective that things must be tested. It's the, the point of Job is for us to break out of our patterns of thinking that we've always thought and be like, whoa, what if that was true? Then, then something different would need to happen. 
So it's a thought experiment. And in this thought experiment, Job has every blessing taken from him. His health, his wealth, his family, everything in a series of uh, catastrophes is removed from him at once. And now we can see for sure whether Job is righteous. And his friends gather around him, uh, they mourn with him, and after a few days of mourning, they start this discussion of why. The experiment has begun. Why God? Why me? Why are bad things happening to a good man? And all of this is happening in the land of Uz. So the land of Uz is where the scene is set. And interestingly, uh, historians cannot find the land of Uz. It is not a geographical reality. Elsewhere in the Bible, uh, it speaks about the, the Edomites, who we know their geography, where they lived, are living in the land of Uz. So it seems like the land of Uz is a metaphorical uh, thing. And what we do know is what Uz means. So Uz means council. They're living in the land of council. They're living in the land of know-it-alls. They're living in the land of having all the answers. They're living in the land of Proverbs, where they think that everything makes sense. This leads to that, and we, in the land of us, are fully able to judge right and wrong. We have eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and we are able to judge. So the land of us refers metaphorically to the land of counsel, the land of know-it-alls. And you'll notice that all the characters who live in the land of us, Job's friends and Job, have all the answers. None of them ask thoughtful questions throughout the, throughout the book. And so they're living in this two-dimensional wisdom world, and there are three statements that they are arguing around. And so it's, it's a classic logic problem where there is statement A, statement B, statement C, and only two of these statements can be true at once. So if statement A and B are right, then C must be false. It's statement B and C are right, A must be false, uh, and so on. And these are the statements. Statement A says, God is just and good. Statement B says, is the retribution principle, which means that the world is run by a very simple justice system, which we are able to observe. Good deeds get reward, bad deeds get punishment. And then statement C is that Job is innocent. Because they're living in the land of us, statement B is not up for debate. Job and his friends are 100% sure that they are able to look at a situation and judge what is right and what should be rewarded. They're living in the land of us. They know it all. His friends, Job's friends, believe that A is true. God is just and good. And so therefore, there is only one conclusion. Job deserves what he's getting. Job's, Job is not innocent. Job, on the other hand, knows that he's innocent, which is true because it's, the book's opened up with God saying that he is innocent. So Job knows he's innocent. And therefore, his only conclusion is that God is not just and good. And that is the logic problem that is being debated. Not once through the 37 chapters of argument is a thoughtful question asked. A thoughtful question being a question that has the humility to be open to new truth that is beyond their current understanding. New truth is not necessarily contradictory truth, but it's greater truth, and it might look contradictory from where we are standing. So I don't know if those of you who were here, I remember we had a discussion around a teapot 
six months ago, and we had a, a, a literal teapot sitting on the, on the uh, platform here. And those who were looking at this side could see that this was a shape with a handle. Those who were on this side could see that it was a shape with a spout. Neither of us could see each other's perspectives. And so therefore, we all had two-dimensional vision. We are standing in one position, and we can only see one thing. So how this book progresses is God steps in and leads a virtual tour. So God's virtual tour is Act 2. And he takes Job out of his position and helps him to see that there is a whole lot of other perspective that's going on. Not only is there the other people's side of the story, even if you've seen everywhere around the teapot, they're still inside the teapot that you haven't seen. And he does this by asking questions which I would have it a guess you've asked before, but have put aside because they're uncomfortable. He asks Job questions like, so when did time begin? And if time began then, what happened the day before? What will happen the day after time? If the earth is not falling, what is holding it up? And if it were to fall down, which way would it be down? Questions which blow your mind and make you put them aside because you don't want to live anywhere else other than in the land of us. And those questions force us to admit that we don't have the perspective that God has because we haven't a clue to the answers of those questions. When you are inside of time, you do not know what happened the day before time started and you cannot fathom a day after time finishes. When you are inside of space, you cannot understand what is holding the world up and which way is down because we're inside of that reality. And so God takes Job on a virtual tour. And this is the question he asks, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Who is this that is darkening us by words without knowledge? Stand up. I want to talk to you. And he blows Job's mind with some questions that Job is unable to answer. And Job's response is a good response. He slaps his hand over his mouth and he says, I may have spoken out of turn once. And then he adds, or, or probably twice. <laughs> I think I may have spoken out of turn twice. And God continues and takes Job on this virtual tour, not just of, uh, of the, the universe, which Job's admitted, I don't understand. Then he takes Job on a virtual tour of his current reality. Well, what is happening in the sea? That's, that's within your earth. It's not outside of space and time. Let's go inside of space and time. What's going on in the sea? You don't know? Okay. What is going on in the puddle on your driveway? You don't know. You don't have the perspective that is required to answer most of the thoughtful questions. See, Job's assumption before this virtual tour was if God is good and able, he would reward wise and good people and punish evil and stupid people. But there is a deeper assumption that he has had, and that is that Job has enough perspective to make this claim. All of us, when we come to the position of questioning God and deciding that we are not getting what we deserve, are standing on the position of the deeper assumption that we are able to not only judge right and wrong, from our perspective, but judge right and wrong from everybody's perspective and from inside the teapot, God's perspective, which we will never be able to see because it's outside of our reality. 
And God asks Job a second time, who is this that darkens the counsel without knowledge? And Job answers incredibly wisely, and he says, I know, God, that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that darkens counsel without knowledge? It's me. I've uttered what I didn't understand, things that are too wonderful for me that I didn't know. You've asked me to answer you, and I've realized that I'm incapable of it. I humble myself. I despise my own opinion. I realize how small I am, and I leave it in your hands, God. And Act 3, which is just a few lines, I find so beautiful. Because in Act 3, God honors Job. God honors Job. And he says an amazing thing. thing. He says, Job has spoken rightly about me, and Job's friends have spoken wrongly about me. And that's an incredible statement because Job has been completely out of line. Job has said that God is not just and good. That is the conclusion that Job came to. So how has Job spoken rightly about God? And the reason being is that Job has stepped out of the land of us. Job has humbled himself to understand that he can't live in the land of knowing it all. His friends remain there, even though they're calling God just and good. They, they think they are able to make all the decisions, that they are able to make all the judgments. Job doesn't understand still, but what he does understand is that he doesn't understand. <laughs> he knows enough to know that he cannot live in the land of know-it-all. And God honors that. God honors Job's struggle. It has been hard. <laughs> Job has lost everything. He's lost his family He's lost everything he's built up over the years. He is, has lost his health. And God honors your struggle too, friends. Whatever it is that you are wrestling with, that you feel you don't deserve, that you feel is just, it's just too hard for you, God honors that. He honors your struggle. He is not unaware. He doesn't not see what you're going through and what is hard. He honors your struggle. And then God honors Job's honesty. He appreciates that Job, instead of living in the land of us and arguing back and forth, has wrestled with God in his confusion. He's gone to God and he's, he's fought with God and he's argued with God and he's pointed fingers at God instead of talking about God behind his back. And God honors that. He honors his honesty because the only way that God can turn Job's accusations to helpful questions is in a conversation with Job. And God honors your honesty when you wrestle with him as well. And thirdly, God honors Job's prayer. He asks Job to pray for his friends and, and to pray that God would forgive them, and he does. He honors Job's prayer to forgive his friends, and he blesses Job with health, with great wealth, with great family, not because of it's a reward system that's simple, but because God is good and he runs his universe by good principles that often fit into Proverbs and sometimes are beyond greater and deeper than the simplicity of what the Proverbs say, but always have the essence of the truth of what those Proverbs are. So when you are feeling, maybe now, maybe in the future, like God just doesn't have your back, Will you remember this verse with me? Though he slay me, 
I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face, and this will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before him. The three takeaways that I'd like to leave with you are the three things that God ministered to me. Number one, will you trust him? Though he slay you, though it feels like you have got a fist to the face and God is celebrating instead of defending you, though he slay you, will you hope in him? Will you hope in him? Will you trust in the goodness of the Father who may understand the fist in the face that you don't understand? Would you be honest and wrestle with God? Would you wrestle with him? Would you stay with him when the meaningless mist has you so confused? Will you not give up? Will you go to God in the meaningless mist and hold on to him until he can pull you through into the wisdom of Proverbs, into the wisdom of being able to hold the greater truth with the simple truth within it? And number three, remember that God does have your back. He does have your back. He is not against you. He is not on the side of the godless. He is not defending others against you. It may look like that, but that is not the case. He does not let the godless come before him. There is not a Satan in heaven that is able to accuse you. That is not the case. The godless shall not come before him. God is not beholden to our two-dimensional wisdom in his three-dimensional world. He has a greater understanding, a greater knowledge. We do sometimes say, if I were God, but thank goodness <laughs> I'm not because I think the world would be spinning backwards <laughs> after my first day of work. We are not God. There is a greater truth. There is wisdom woven into the fabric of creation, and it doesn't always look like it from our perspective, but that doesn't mean that it's not true. And so Job is inviting you to a greater wisdom, a wisdom that appreciates the Proverbs, cuts through the meaningless mist, and finds God in the greater wisdom. 